awesome. Shout out to the campus pastors. That's a tough bit to pull off, and I've been laughing at it all weekend as we've been watching it. And shout out to all of our campuses. In fact, at all of our campuses, how about everyone just show some love for our campus pastors. All the effort and the leadership. We are blessed with the best, and we, we pray that you just find today's service uplifting and encouraging. Hopefully it edifies your life, whoever you are, wherever you are. Somebody say, welcome to the party. That church ought to be a celebration of God's goodness, right? It, it ought to be a party. And so welcome to the party, whether you are a family member, right? You are part of the Northview family. Or, or whether you're new today. Or maybe, maybe you're not even a Christian. My prayer is every single week as we gather, individuals who don't know Jesus would come hang out with us. One thing I love about Jesus is Jesus liked people who are nothing like him. And people who are nothing like Jesus... They liked Jesus. There's something intriguing about them, and there's something that caused people to rise up in curiosity. What is it about this man that triggers something in the depths of my soul? And just know if, if you're not a Christian, that is likely to happen if you continue to hang out in spaces like this. Because our God is good, and he is faithful, and he has a plan for every single one of our lives, and he has done the unthinkable on behalf of you. And I pray you bump into that for the first time today. We are in week two of our series, Bottom of the Ninth. How to thrive under pressure because life comes with pressure. Have you discovered that? Life comes with pressure. Marriage comes with pressure. Parenting, it comes with pressure. Our society, culture comes with pressure. Your career, pressure. Living a life of faith, pressure. But the good news is, is as we follow Jesus, we not only can survive death, we can thrive in life. And we can thrive under pressure. I've been looking forward to this weekend just because I felt like last weekend left me with like a three-day vulnerability hangover. I don't think I've ever cried in front of that many people at once. Uh, but last week was special. I do want to say just thank you to all of you who reached out to Kristen and I. Your, your kindness, your support, your enthusiasm was, was just really appreciated on our end. And, you know, it's funny. I didn't know what to expect last week. Uh, and this may seem shallow, but I actually Googled, how do you install a pastor? And uh, the first article that popped up, it says you download it from the cloud. Which I thought to myself, now that'll preach. That will preach. I do think a lot of this in some ways was downloaded from the cloud. And isn't it just precious and beautiful what happens when God's in full control, when God leads the way, and when we just surrender it all to him. And I just feel like much of this was downloaded from the cloud. Pastor Steve asked me this morning, he's like, hey, does it feel different? One week into it, does it feel different? I said, well, during rehearsal, I did look at the screen and I'm starting to thin a little bit. <laughs> so it's getting real, folks. My forehead is becoming a six head. And uh, the pressure is, the pressure's real. Today we're going to talk about arguably one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. It's a passage that you've heard quoted maybe at a funeral or maybe at a, even a, a graduation. Sometimes you will hear people pray this over an individual. You'll hear this at a baby dedication. I mean, we hear this in a lot of different, you know, spaces and places. In fact, we also will even hear this in movies and media. This is, well, it's, it's a pretty known passage. In fact, for those of you who aren't Christians, 
there's a good chance even you are familiar with this passage. And it comes to us in Psalms chapter 23. Psalms chapter 23, it's only six verses, but this is loaded. And David starts out with this. And my prayer is that this statement becomes your statement. That you have the level of ownership that David possesses. And David says, the Lord is my shepherd. He's not just the shepherd of Saul is what David is saying. He's not just the shepherd of Abraham. He's not just a shepherd of guys like Noah and, you know, all the other patriarchs. No, he's my personal shepherd. I'm in relationship with him. And I sense his activity in my life. And I pray you, you find yourself growing in your relationship with God. Where you say statements like, the Lord is my shepherd. This is the overflow of my personal relationship with him, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters, and he restores my soul, and he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Do you see which word I'm stressing? He. One thing that we fall into often is taking too much credit for God's activity in our life. And just know that so much of the favor and the blessing and the goodness of God in our lives gets, well, I don't know if we turn it back to praise. I don't know if we take moments to really reflect on, hey, God, that was just you being kind to me. And church, hear this. Every blessing that doesn't turn back to praise has the potential to turn into pride. Every blessing that doesn't turn back to praise, it has the potential to turn into pride. I was with a buddy out for lunch recently, and I said, you know, a pattern you see throughout Scripture and a challenge for humanity is God is constantly looking for people who can steward his glory. Because there's something in our broken faculties that anytime God starts to be glorified or God starts to do remarkable things among us, we kind of want credit for it. I've fallen into this as well, but I'm telling you, To him be all the glory and all the honor. Amen. It's his work in our life. And this is, this is quite the statement. He says, even though, which this is actually a statement you find a couple times in scripture and it's always tied to audacious faith. Even though I endure these type of circumstances, even though this is my current reality, even though these are the obstacles in front of me, I'm taking my cues from Christ, my question for you is, do you have an even though kind of faith? He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, it's one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Come on, church, on the count of three, I think we all need to say amen. One, two, three, amen. That's an amen kind of passage. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever because of God's work in my life. I just can't get enough of it. And here's a principle that you will hear me quote often. 
give it a couple years, and before you know it, you're going to be like, he's always saying that. That's old material. He says it over and over again. But it is a handle that I think will serve you well in your faith. And here's the principle. Changing the metaphor changes the imagination. Okay, so this is a really artistic passage. The Lord is my shepherd. And, you know, he comforts me. He leads me. He guides me. How? By his rod and his staff. He, he anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. And there's all of these strong images. And what you find all throughout Scripture are strong images. God is an artist. And a lot of times he's trying to stir our imagination all to spark our awe and our wonder of who he is. So a lot of times God will give us a, a metaphor. And what it will do is it will, it will stretch the constructs of our thinking. And it will at times even combat the paradigms and the things in which we've confined God to. And so sometimes you have to look at a metaphor and say, in light of this metaphor, how does this help me understand what God is saying better? In Scripture, there are metaphors assigned to Jesus. There are metaphors assigned to the Bible. There are metaphors assigned to the church. And there are metaphors assigned to you and me. Scripture says that Jesus is our rock. Well, what does it mean? And why do we need a rock in our life? You let it stretch your imagination before you, you know it, you are appreciating him as the foundation of your life. Scripture says Jesus is our shield. I mean, far better than ever anything Captain America could ever hold. This shield that stands before us is it's unbelievable. But, but what does it mean to have him as our shield? What is he shielding us from? The wrath of God. That on the cross, our God punished sin and preserved the sinner. When you look at the metaphor, it stretches your imagination. Are you tracking with me? I mean, Scripture says that the Bible is like a double-edged sword, right? Meaning it cuts both ways. And when you think of a sword with a blade on each side, I mean, what does that, how does that shape your understanding of the Bible and how you should use it? And maybe it'll leave you walking away from a space like this saying, I need to learn to wield my sword. And when I go against things, I can, I can chop at this and I can chop at that and I can stand firm in God's word and declaration over my life. The metaphor stretches the imagination. Some of my favorite metaphors are the ones assigned to the church. Scripture says we're the light of the world. I think as the American church, we've grown pretty accustomed to that. So much so we've overlooked the second part of that. Or the salt of the earth. And I do believe that the church is stepping into a season where our obsession with light is going to have to decrease and our appreciation for salt is going to have to increase. And maybe, just maybe, the season we're in and what the future holds for the church looks a little bit more like salt in this season than it does light. The American church has been very accustomed to light. But it stretches your imagination. Another metaphor assigned to the church is the bride Wow, I mean, that will change the way you view the church. That'll change the way you even treat the church. Sometimes I will hear folks, I mean, almost spitting in the face of the church at large within our culture. And I think to myself, my goodness, be careful. Because at some point we all meet the groom. Come on, fellas, if someone treated your bride the way you see people treating his, there'd be some issues. 
the metaphor, it stretches the imagination. So whenever you come to these images, pump the brakes. Because I'm telling you, packed within that image and metaphor is awe and wonder and a greater understanding and appreciation of our God. And so it says he's, he's our shepherd. Jesus showed up on the scene and he actually owned that label. I am the good shepherd. I'm the shepherd. What does it mean for him to be your shepherd? And then David gives us more image and it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now this is going to be quick, but take notes or watch it back on YouTube. Discuss it in your groups. That's something we're pushing everyone to do. Join a group. But here it is, the basics. Your rod and your staff, essentially what David is getting at is they represent God's word and God's spirit. So your rod and your staff. Okay, so how is he my shepherd? How is he leading me? How is he guiding me? It's by his rod and his staff, by his word and his spirit. Now, I think for most people, his word is easier to grasp. I get it that if I read God's scripture and I'm disciplined in God's word, I'll discover God's ways. I'll be able to discern God's will. Do you get it? If I'm disciplined in God's word, I'll discover God's ways. I'll be able to discern God's will. I think when it comes to God's word, it's easier to grasp. But when it comes to God's spirit, it gets a little tricky. And a lot of times people will ask me, how can you tell? How can you tell the spirit of God is speaking to you? Life is full of noise. How do you know that was God? And in my life, this is how it tends to work out. I know it's the spirit of God because it is always a very concise and convincing thought that I strongly disagree with, but I, I'm persuaded nonetheless. <laughs> you ever felt something well up in you that it suddenly and immediately convinced you of something you are annoyed to agree with? There have been times Chris and I have been in arguments Recently, it was while we were pulling into a grocery store, and it probably had to do with the parking spot because there's always commentary on which parking spot I'm picking. <laughs> Kristen stays in the car. I run in. And in my mind, I'm thinking, my goodness, by the time I get back in this vehicle, I am going to have my rebuttal fully formed. <laughs> I'm good with words, and homegirl better be ready. And then I'm coming down the cereal aisle, and like as clear as can be and as convincing as can be, God was like, you're actually the moron here. <laughs> and you, when you get back in that car, you just need to acknowledge it and ask for forgiveness and apologize. That did not come from me. I know that did not come from me. Somewhere the spirit of God informed me of the truth in my life. And I always, you know, make this point because it's, it's important for us to grasp, you know, God will will work in our life through his word and through his spirit. And at times it comes with him affirming things and at times it comes with him addressing things. And as followers of Christ, spiritual maturity embraces both. So here's how to understand the rod a little bit better. The rod was a tool used for guarding and protecting. It was more like a club. And so what would happen is out in the field, a shepherd would have to fend off predators from the flock. And a lot of times... We overlook God's protection in our life. Have you ever been amazed by how few of car accidents you've actually been in? 
I mean, car accidents, they happen every day, but I'm surprised that in my lifetime, I've only been in two. Because every day of my life, I see terrible drivers. Sometimes with Northview stickers on the back. And I'm like, dear God. <laughs> Bless them. But have you ever been amazed by how you get down the road to and from in life, and most of the time it doesn't come with a wreck? And I can't wait to get to heaven to see, I'm assuming, I'm, I'm hoping, that part of eternity is us getting to watch the game film of our life. God, would you just show me all the times you protected me and I wasn't aware of it? And I'm just telling you, I, I get the sense that God is so active in protecting us, and most time it goes unappreciated. Just know this, where you lack awareness, you will always lack appreciation. And so it's raising your awareness, my goodness, life could be a lot harder. There must be someone guarding and protecting me. My shepherd with his rod is at work. And the staff is for guiding and directing. So one looks like this club with this big head on it. And the other was almost like this really big candy cane. And these were the two tools of a shepherd. Another way of viewing them is the rod, you know, is there for power and authority. And the staff is there for care and compassion. So it's understanding God's word, God's spirit, guarding and guiding, protecting and directing, authority, power, compassion, care. You start to understand, okay, I, I see how he wants to move and operate in my life. But here's the thing about this metaphor. And here's where it goes unapplied and misunderstood. And that is this. We can't see him as our shepherd until we see ourselves as his sheep. We love this idea of him being our shepherd. We just don't like this idea of this being us. <laughs> but this is us. And I mean, I assign you some homework. Go home and just research a sheep. And just ask the Lord, how am I like this animal? Because the metaphor will stretch your imagination. And here's the thing. These sheep have some funny and intriguing tendencies. They have some tendencies. Two of the ones that I want to point out that I think are just interesting is sheep are defenseless animals. So most animals have like a survival mechanism. So like the porcupine is fairly unimpressive. It's pretty small. It's not very strong. It's not very large. It's not very fast. But it has some gnarly hair that can cost you if you get close to them, right? And so that one survival instinct helps it survive in, out in the wild. Well, sheep don't have that. One, they don't have sharp teeth. They don't have claws. or They're not these ferocious, you know, equipped animals. They are defenseless. And I think sometimes we, we as humans can relate to that. There are a lot of things that take place in the world that we kind of find ourselves defenseless. You ever found that cancer is a respecter of no person? It doesn't matter how much money you have. There are certain things in this life that we're just defenseless of. Hatred. Sin in general. We were born into it. And in many ways... 
We're defenseless to it. So that we are defenseless animals. In addition to that, one thing that I found to be really insightful about uh, sheep is they are, hear me on this, ignorant grazers. They are ignorant grazers. What this means is sheep, not with ill intention, but what they do is they, they kind of just get caught up in grazing. And their head is down and, and they're really only focused on the next patch of grass and the next patch of grass. And they're just filling an appetite. And what happens with sheep often is in filling their appetite, they drift into harm's way. And so sheep are often injured because they, they kind of climb up on a ledge where they, they're nibbling on a, a patch of grass on the edge of a cliff. And now they're stuck thinking, how in the world am I going to get down from here? Or another thing that would happen in, in Jesus's era and in his region is a sheep would, would wander while grazing into thorns and thickles and, and different shrubs that they would get stuck in. And so the purpose of the staff with this hook on it was to either grab them around the neck or the leg to either help them off the ledge or out of the thorns. And I just wonder, and I get this sense, and hear me, this is going to be pastoral. But some of you, you're, you're grazing ignorantly. I, I don't think it's that you've set out with ill intention, and I don't think you are full of rebellion, and I don't think you are on some reckless pursuit to edify the flesh and contest God's work in your life, but you're kind of just gradually going through life, and you're fulfilling an appetite, and you're grazing, you're grazing, you're grazing, and before you know it, you look up and you realize, how did I get on this ledge, and how did I get stuck within these thorns? And so it's just learning to pay attention to our ignorant grazing. And this is where it is so essential for us to have a good shepherd to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to help you off that ledge so you don't get injured. And I'm going to pull you out of those thorns so you don't take on unnecessary pain. And church, here's the deal. We need tending because we have tendencies. The reason why we need a shepherd to tend to us is because every single one of us has some tendencies. And my question for you is, what are your tendencies? And where do you find yourself possibly grazing ignorantly into harm's way? And it's just learning to make honest assessments of yourself and say, I need a good shepherd with a rod and a staff who can guide and guard, protect and direct me and my life. And David was comforted by this. David was, one, comforted by his direction. Two, he was comforted by his protection. And three, I love this one, he was comforted by his correction. Are you comforted by the times God corrects you? Scripture says a wise person invites rebuke. That's why I say I would rather my sin come with conviction then my sin become a condition. You, you're comforted by his correction. It, it's his tender mercy of saying, you are made for more. You're better than that. And what would happen if you started to appreciate, to welcome, even at times crave, 
God's tender mercy and his correction in your life. And so in this passage, David lays two very contradicting things in contrast. The shepherd and the shadow. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, right? And he talks about the Lord as his shepherd. And then he, he kind of shifts. And he says, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And in contrast, there is the shadow and there is the shepherd. And my question for you is which one moves you more? The shepherd or the shadow? Which one do you take your cues from? The shepherd or the shadow? Which moves you more? Faith or fear? Grace or shame? Peace or anxiety? Joy or despair? Which moves you more? Do you take your cues from the shepherd or do you take your cues from the shadow? David's saying, I've learned in my life to take my cues from my shepherd. And he says, I got down the road and I pivoted, which at times you have to pivot. Because you may not be where you want to be, but by the grace of God, you are where you shouldn't be, right? And so sometimes we get so focused on where we want to be, we, we fail to turn around and look at how far we've come and how good God has been to us. And David says, when I look back on life, the one thing I'm confident of is in my rearview mirror, I see goodness, and mercy, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And here's the principle. What you follow determines what follows you. He, he's just saying, I just started following my shepherd and I'm telling you, I got down the road and I looked behind me and the overarching theme of my life was God's goodness and God's mercy. And I'm telling you, what you follow, who you follow, determines what follows you. It determines what follows you. I appreciate the 17 of you. Goodness and mercy is going to follow you, pal. I know it. Isn't that the, the goal? But here's where we get it twisted. As Christians, we chase favor, we chase goodness, we chase mercy, and then we end up in this empty pursuit of self-gratification. No, it's when you chase the shepherd that the byproduct of your life is goodness and mercy. And so in this, it raises the question, all right, David, you're being really poetic, this is a beautiful passage. But David, what is inspiring these words? I mean, clearly there had to be something in your experience that is causing you to think of these things. And sure, you could say that this passage could apply to a lot of different experiences David had. But there's one cue in this passage that kind of hints at one situation in his life more than any other. And it's that statement, the valley of the shadow of death. Because at one point, David stepped into the valley of the shadow of death. And why did he step in there? 
See, what happens is, is all throughout 1 Samuel, you got to read it. Go home, read your Bible. What you're going to find is in the valley of the shadow of death, the Philistines and the Israelites were in gridlock. They squared off. And there was this, there was this practice of the day that rather than there being a lot of casualties and so much bloodshed and so much loss, they would kind of come to terms. Hey, each army designate a champion. Someone to stand in the middle. That's what that word actually means. The word champion in the scriptures actually means the man in the middle. And so the Philistines, they had a champion. And they positioned him in the middle. And for 40 days, this champion of the Philistines heckles the Israelites. Somebody come out here and fight me. During this time, David was tending the sheep. David was at home with his father, and his father says, hey, I want you to bring lunch to your brothers out on the battlefield. So David delivers lunch. You ever stop to think, my goodness, the Bible was so far ahead of its time. This was Uber Eats long before it was ever an idea. (laughs) He's delivering food. And so David shows up. On a, well, on an errand to deliver lunch. And I love what scripture says. So 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 4. It says, and a champion named Goliath was out there in the middle. And he was talking trash. And what I love about it is David shows up to serve a lunch. And he discovers he's about to slay a giant. Guys, I'm so convinced of this. I, this may be one of the strongest beliefs in my personal doctrine. And, and that is, I am convinced that significance is found on the path of service. I, I'm just telling you, if you feel like your la- life lacks significance, I would press you that chances are it lacks service. There's something about serving others that is critical to this life of faith. It's critical to a life of godliness. It reflects who our Savior is, and it positions us to have a tremendous impact. So he shows up serving a lunch, and he discovers he's about to slay a giant. And I would put it before you this way. If you're unwilling to serve a lunch... Because a lot of times we look down on certain serving opportunities, right? Which just know Jesus got down and washed the feet of some grown men, something that I think grosses most of us out. <laughs> but the Son of God did it. And here's a principle, tuck it away. If Jesus is above us, meaning Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is above us, nothing he did is beneath us. Oh, come on, church. If Jesus is above us, nothing he did is beneath us. And so if you're unwilling to serve a lunch, there's a good chance you're unable to slay a giant. Because there's something in your spiritual development and your character development that along the path of service, you rise to the occasion for greater acts of significance. And so David finds himself in a place that is going to be catalytic to his destiny. And how he gets there is simply by his willingness to serve. David hears Goliath out there talking trash. And immediately David's like, who in the world is this guy? David had some 
relational equity with King Saul because King Saul had some anxiety issues and heard that David could play the harp. And so David would come and play the harp for King Saul. So David kind of had access to Saul. So David goes to Saul and is like, man, I will fight this guy. And what I love is there's this interchange because Saul had some questions and even David's brothers had some doubts. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. Now that's a good shepherd. Come on, if you're in a field and a lion comes and steals one of your sheep, I'm thinking, man. <laughs> Sorry, lamb chop. He said, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep, uh, the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, David was nuts. I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. He goes on to say, your servant has killed both lion and bear and this uncircumcised Philistine. Which I love biblical trash talk. <laughs> I mean, that is some biblical trash talk. This cat's uncircumcised. I can take him. That's a weird statement. <laughs> we'll be like one of them. And then watch this statement. Because he has defied the armies of the living God. Not because I'm that great. But the greater overarching issue here is he stands in contradiction to the God of the universe. That's a problem for this fella. I'm more confident in the God that I serve than the Goliath that's talking trash. So it goes on to tell us, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. I mean, this is pretty amazing because in this moment, Saul places the fate of the nation in the hands of a teenager. And in this moment, David doesn't have misplaced confidence. This isn't arrogance that we see welling up in him. There's something natural about his courage. And what it is, is David understands his pattern of success. He says, wait a second, let me think about this. I've struck down a lion. I've struck down a bear. I have a pattern in my life. I'm somewhat familiar with these type of situations. And my question for you is what is your pattern of success? Because what I find is most people have no idea what makes them great. In fact, for the longest time, I had no idea what made me effective. You kind of start out in leadership, whatever your occupation is, and you go down this road of self-development, which I'm a huge advocate for. But what happens is, is your focus begins to drift towards developing all these other external skill sets and, you know, disciplines, which, again, are good. But what can happen is we can start to prioritize or maybe even think our worth and our effectiveness is in those things rather in the natural, unique gifting that God hardwired us with. So here's the question. What was David even good at? Here's what's crazy. This guy is the greatest king in the nation of, history, uh, in the nation of Israel, and he was only good at two things. I mean, he had godly character, so let's put that as the foundation. Know that. But his two skill sets was he could play a harp 
and he could sling a rock. And somehow God looked at a godly person who could play a harp and sling a rock, and he was like, I can make a king out of that. It's amazing. For a long time, I didn't know what made me great. And then over time, I started to discover I'm really only good at two things as well. I have a gift of discernment, and I'm good with concepts. I'm also told that I have a fairly good memory. And that's it. Like, I think I came off the conveyor belt of heaven, and angels were like, this one's going to be interesting. (laughs) I can't wait to see how God uses this fella. But again, a lot of times we deny our uniqueness and we overlook what makes us great. And chances are you may only be uniquely gifted in one or two areas, but no, God can use a couple unique giftings that you think are insignificant to accomplish remarkable things. I'd say it this way. You don't have to be good at everything to be great at something. And in addition to that, well, all this is orchestrating. It's as if God in his brilliant sovereignty, he knows exactly what he's doing to where David shows up at just the right time. And know this, because you don't go overlooked. You may be overlooked by people in your life, but you're not overlooked by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I would say this, God knows where to find you whenever he chooses to use what he placed inside you. Church, God knows where to find you whenever he chooses to use what he placed inside you. And so it's just blooming where you're planted and being faithful with where you're at, knowing at some time God might take my gifting and he might move it from this field to this valley. And suddenly the results of my gifting and its impact multiply beyond my comprehension. I mean, when David steps into the, ga- the valley, That's not when he discovers his ability to sling a rock. That's when the nation discovered his ability to sling a rock. Just be faithful because at some point God will put your gifting in a different environment and even you will be surprised by how he uses it. So in this moment, the conversation goes on. It says, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic and he put a coat of armor on him and bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. He says, I cannot go out in these, he said, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. And I love how this ends. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand, approached the Philistine. I mean, it's on the battle. And in this moment, you would expect a warrior to walk out onto the battlefield. And instead of a warrior, walks out a shepherd. Oh my goodness, this is so amazing. And the question is, what is this story about? See, it's not wrong to assume that, hey, this kind of has that theme of overcoming the odds, right? And if you've heard messages preached along that lines, it's not to say they're inaccurate. It's just to say maybe they're incomplete. I myself have preached messages of David and Goliath and him triumphing over the odds. But in all reality, you could argue that this story is less of an underdog story and more of a story 
about theology. It's more of a story about theology. And here's where we get exposed. When we read this story, we think David is the underdog. And in that thought, we're exposed of our theology. Our theology being who we believe God to be. David steps out and is like, wait a second. This guy is picking a fight with God, not with me. This isn't going to go well for him. Guys, in this story, David's not the underdog. Goliath is. Goliath doesn't stand a chance. He has positioned himself against the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the God of the universe. This guy does not stand a chance. And so you could argue this is maybe a story about theology and where maybe our faith doesn't match our beliefs. Another question is who are we in this story? Like, have you ever misread a story, misread a moment, misread a situation? I tend to misread a lot of interactions with my wife. (laughs) I assume a lot of things are hints and she's flirting when she's not. (laughs) Kristen can wake up and stretch and I'll think she's wanting me to come in for a hug. Or she does this one thing when she's flirting with me where she scoffs and she rolls her eyes. And I think to myself, I am picking up what you're putting down. (laughs) You can misread it. We often misread this because when we look at this story, who do we think we are? David. We all want to be David. But if anything, remember, this is who we are. (laughs) We're not the shepherd. We're the sheep. We're not the shepherd. We are the sheep. If anything, we are the nation of Israel on the sidelines, terrified by the opposition in the middle of the valley. And so this is where you have to read Scripture in its entirety. St. Augustus said it this way. He said, the Old Testament is like a fully furnished room that is dimly lit. In other words, what he's saying is you need the light of the gospel to illuminate the Old Testament all to fully see everything that's happening there. So in the New Testament, the gospel, Jesus shows up and he says, I'm the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And I know your world thinks a lot of Goliath. You see his stature and you see the technology of his armor and you see the brute force and the hatred spewing out of him. And that looks like true courage. That looks like true power. It looks like he's favored to win. But I'm the shepherd who shows up and takes the giant out. I'm that shepherd. It's amazing to me because this word gospel that we often reference, it actually comes from the context of war. 
So we're, we're talking about this war story and this battleground, and it's actually a war term. And if, in the Greek, the word, and I've heard it pronounced two different ways, it's either euangelion or euvangelion. However you want to say it, I'm not a Greek scholar, just trying to do my best. And it was a war term. And what would happen is in a fight, in a battle, in a battle, what would happen is they would designate a runner. And they would stand on the fringes of the battle. And they would run back to the village where all the women and all the children and all the elderly were awaiting to hear, hey, were all of our men just plundered? Are we now going to be taken as slaves? Are a group of, is a group of army going to show up and force us to do really heinous things? Are they going to murder off our elderly? So the village back home would be sitting on pins and needles. And so over the hill, they would see the messenger come running. Whether they won or whether they lost, it was a messenger. Hey, here's what just happened. And so the messenger would come running into the village. And he would get on an elevated platform. And everybody would gather around. And he would try to gather himself and gain his breath. And people would lean in. And he would deliver the message. And if they lost, he would say, this is going to be the worst day of our lives. But if they won, he would stand up there and he'd say, I bring to you this day an euangelion. We won good news. We were victorious. We're going to live free. The men are coming home and we're going to celebrate and we're going to rejoice because the victory is ours. That's what a gospel would have been. And church, today, I feel pressed upon my heart to stand on an elevated platform and to bring to many of you an euangelion. Our shepherd stepped into the valley. I mean, David walked into the valley of the shadow of death. Our Jesus stepped into death, snatched the keys from hell, drop kicked the tomb, came walking out, we stand victorious. We stand victorious. I'm an old soul and I love the hymns. And this is where I love the hymn, Tis So Sweet, to trust in Jesus. I love this part. Just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise just to say thus saith the Lord Jesus, Jesus how I love you how I prove you o'er and o'er Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus oh to grace to trust you more would you just trust him a little bit more because he's a good shepherd, amen. amen. At this point, I'm going to pass it back to our campuses. And I'm going to ask those of you in the room to stand to your feet and pray with me.
Again, if you're not a Christian, why wouldn't you want a relationship with this Jesus? And at the end of service, I'm going to be over here to the left. And if you are curious and you have questions or you'd like to pray to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, myself, staff members in both of these corners will be ready. We'd love to talk to you. But let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, you're so good. And your rod and your staff, they do comfort us. And God, thank you for being our champion, our man in the middle who decided to act on our behalf and secured a victory we could not attain on our own. Jesus, we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, enjoy your week.